Hello, this is Mark Zandi, Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics. Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm joined by my trusted colleagues, Ryan Sweet. Ryan is the Director of Real-Time Economics. And, and Ryan, you, you nailed it last week. Didn't you say your, your statistic was personal income up, I believe you said 21% on the nose, and that's what we got today. Is that right? 21.5. Okay. That was my forecast. So I was okay. off a hair. A hair. Very good. Excellent. We'll come back to that in a minute. And uh, also joining us is Chris Dorides, Deputy Chief Economist. Hello, Chris. Hey, Mark. Good to see you. Uh, and uh, welcome to our podcast. Uh, as uh, regular listeners uh, now know, there are three parts to the uh, to the podcast. Part one, we're going to go over some of the indicators uh, over the past week, maybe in the coming week, give you a sense of uh, how things are going and where we're headed. And then part two, the big topic uh, this week, we're going to tackle the American Families Plan. Of course, that is uh, what President Biden, <coughs> excuse me, unveiled uh, earlier this week in the State of the Union. Uh, I don't think he called it a State of the Union, though. I don't think they called it that this time for some reason. Uh, but um, it's the second part of the Build Back Better agenda focused on families, and we're going to dissect that. And then part three, uh, I'll just kind of bring it all together for everybody, uh, give you a sense of where we landed. So with that, let's uh, begin with the indicators. Uh, so yeah, kudos, Ryan. Uh, you know, uh, before we go on, uh, people, I think I mentioned this before, but I, I just want to mention it again. You are uh, among the very best at uh, forecasting these real-time indicators. Uh, you're always in a pitched battle with, uh, who's the fellow you're in a pitched battle with always for number one in terms of the best forecaster? Oh, Jim O'Sullivan. With Jim O'Sullivan. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's very good. So it's time for him uh, to retire. Oh, is that right? Oh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> uh, too bad. Um, so uh, give us the, can you give, give us a, a little bit of your secret? How, what is it that makes you so accurate? Why are you so accurate? What do you do that makes predict your predictions of these indicators so good? Well, I have a bunch of models, but you know, when you're forecasting these high-frequency indicators, the model only gets you into, into the ballpark. You really need to know what you're forecasting, like the ins and outs and all the little nuances with, you know, personal income, you know, seasonality issues with employment. So, you know, just diving deeper and really getting to know all the intricacies of each data point. So all, the, uh, yeah, so all of these different data sources have their idiosyncratic features, mm -hmm. uh, seasonality, measurement issues, survey issues, timing of the month when the survey occurs. Correct. All these things. And so you, if you pay really close attention to those things, really begin to understand them, then that uh, makes all the difference in terms of the forecast accuracy. Yeah. And I don't want to give, give away the, like all the ingredients to the secret no, sauce. No, no. You, you really yeah, I mean, yeah. A lot of it's relied on models and it's yeah. trial and error. Every forecast is a learning experience when I'm wrong. And I'd go back and try to figure out why I was wrong and make sure I don't do it again. You know, there was a time when there were these so-called macro hedge funds. They make a living on predicting the uh, month, the weekly indicators. And the closer you were, obviously, the more money you could make in markets. That's gotten a lot harder to do in recent years. Some people do it. Our, our good friend Hasib Ahmed, who used to be one of our colleagues, went off to a hedge fund. Uh, I think still does this and does it quite well. But it's not what it used to be. So. Uh, just well, maybe just think about that for a second. Money. You could have been, you could have been a billionaire by now if it was, you know, you, you had this talent. If you were around twenty years ago when this was really, well, we can revive it. We'll just take some of Chris's crypto money and start our own. <laughs> I'm all for that. Well, yeah, we should. Really I was looking for that. justification. 
right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So what's your indicator for uh, the, the week? Uh, what is your, uh, what do you want to highlight this week? So there's a lot of things that came out this week, but yeah. you know, I picked one where uh, it should ease some of the concerns about this one part of the economy that's starting to cool. Yeah. The number is 8.9%. This is the one part of the economy that's starting to cool? Mm-hmm. It's positive 8.9%? Positive. Geez, I don't know. Do you know, Chris? No. I didn't, I didn't know there was any part of the economy that was cooling. Uh, that's why I'm stuck. <laughs> housing related. So housing. So you're starting to see home sales cool a little bit. Construction yeah. activity is strong, but it's the, the demand side that has shown signs of softening. Pending home sales. We oh, can I see. So all that stuff is starting to soften. Yeah, but you're really stretching. I mean, really stretching, right? Because new home sales were a million, close to a million mm-hmm. annualized. I mean, that's like, a, you guys were really giving me a lot of grief a year or two ago saying we'd never see these kind of sales. And now we're saying- Well, that's, this is why well, I'm picking this number. It actually yeah. supports your overly optimistic housing forecast. Well, it's coming to pass. <laughs> no, it's coming it? to pass. Yep. Yeah, it's coming to pass. All so right, what so is it, 8.9%? Not- what is that? It's the percent of consumers that plan to buy a home in the next six months, which is a record high, the oh. highest since the 1970, late, late 1978. Oh, very cool. It's, That's very and interesting. The average in the last expansion was a little bit over 5%. And I think this is a, a lot of this is demographic driven. So we have 39 million people between the age of 26 to 34. That's about 13% of the total population. So these people are moving into their prime first time home buying uh, age. That's very cool. You know, we've got a bunch of really cool housing statistics. Uh, Chris, uh, one of the guys that we work with, Todd Metcalf, pulled some data calculating the percent of home sales that are flips. Do you, flips. Do you remember that data? Do you yeah. Wanna, how, how does he calculate that, that again? And, and what's the number? Oh, uh, I don't know that I can answer either one of those. Oh, I, th- saw, I, th- I thought it was like he looks at transactions and then he says, yeah. Uh, what is the percent of transactions that are arm's length that occurred within the last within. year of the previous transaction? So if it's within that, one year, that was his definition of a flip. Uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And do you remember the numbers? I the don't statistic? remember the numbers. Yeah. No. Oh boy, I, I got you. Here. You, got so, uh, you got me. It's, it's low. very low. It's, low. it's still low. It's yeah. a very low. higher, but. Uh, yeah, it's, like, certain- it's like less than 10% of sales. And of course, sales, home sales are very high, less than 10, I think it's closer to seven or 8% are flips by his definition. And if you go back into the housing bubble pre-financial crisis, I think it was, you know, 20, 20, 25%, something like that. Even That's higher right. than that at a point. Yeah, I remember those trends, but yeah. yeah. So very so low. That, that also gives me some solace, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. These, these sales are for real. They're not just people out there. It's not a bubble, you know, they're not, not even sense of speculation at this point. Hey, I got yeah. before I go to you, Chris. I because uh, Ryan picked the housing statistic, I got one too. So I'm giving you a hint. You ready? Thirty six thousand dollars. Thirty six thousand dollars. Oh, I got this one. Oh, you do. Okay, go ahead. The the uh, added cost to new home sales from higher lumber prices. Exactly. Way to go. That is exactly right. And that's uh, data from the National Association of Home, Home Builders, who are, you know, gets, just goes to the strong housing market, in this case, housing construction, 
And uh, lumber prices are uh, up a lot. In fact, they've more than doubled over the past year. A lot of things going on there, uh, in addition to strong demand driving up uh, 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 new housing activity. But we've, we've got uh, the tariffs that were put in place with Canada back uh, under Trump. They're still playing some havoc and supply chains have been disrupted. And I think the biggest factor is a lot of Canadian sawmills uh, shut down uh, during the tariffs and uh, it's taking a long time to get them back up and running again. And that's it's not really the lumber, the physical trees. I think we got plenty right. of trees, although there are some issues there with with weevil, bow, not bow weevils, that's cotton, um, pine beetles, pine beetles up in Canada because it's been so warm that these pine beetle, beetles are starting to, they're not getting killed off by the Canadian winters and they're starting to chew up a lot of the lumber. But that's not really what's going on here. It's really the sawmills, I think. That's the yeah. problem. But it's not just lumber, right? You see copper prices, gypsum prices. It's kind of across the board. Across the board, yeah, yeah right. Okay, here's another uh, quiz a question for you. Uh, and you can see I prepare for this all week long. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't and share. Sure In fact, now I'm getting to the place where, oh, I got I to gotta bone up on this for this podcast because they're going to ask me a question. <laughs> I don't know about the data. Uh, um, uh, $350,000. What's $350,000? Oh, Chris has got this one. It's not median home price. Yeah, median yes, new sir. house price. Median new house price. Yep, exactly. So, uh, and it's uh, just for context, right before the financial crisis and the bubble, the median new house price was $250,000. So it's up 100K. Uh, that's a lot, you know, over that period of time, well, yeah. just a little over a decade. Yeah. Okay, Chris, what's your um, statistic? Uh, what's your data point? Negative point six percent. Negative, negative point six percent. Hmm. Can you give us a hint? What's well, you know, I'm always, uh, I'm always oh, growing Japanese tune, CPI. Tune, it, nope. No, oh, he's tune, overseas all the time. I'm in tune with the audience, right? We have a lot of uh, foreign listeners, so. Eurozone GDP in oh, Q1. You got it. Oh, you got, and, that oh, might, yeah. and that is why Ryan is the, uh, the champion of real-time forecasting. Very good. <laughs> Excellent. You know, here, here's something that really bothered me. I, it bothered me when I saw it. You know, New York Times, G, US GDP came out, of course, which none of us picked that as a statistic because I'm sure everyone has read about it, up 6.4% in the first quarter, you know, boom-like kind of growth. But the New York Times, when they reported it, they didn't report it annualized. They reported it as a quarter-to-quarter -quarter change. Like, you know, why are you doing that? I mean, they only do that in, well, I guess we're the only in country Europe? on the planet that annualizes. <laughs> <laughs> why are you Why are you screwing with that? You know, why are you changing that? I, you know, that really, uh, I, I don't know if that was intentional or, you know. Yeah, it was intentional. They started doing that, I believe. It wasn't just them, uh, other uh, news agencies, when, the, during the pandemic, when you've got these enormous big swings in annualized oh, GDP, uh, and they really want to try to reflect, like, you know, what actually happened. Yeah. Well, I, I'm annoyed by it. Makes no sense. Yeah. Really, <laughs> really bug bug me. Yeah. I because I first thing I read it, I go, oh my gosh, how could Ryan be so wrong? Because you predicted your modeling said seven point one. How could it be? You know, what was it? One point six or something? That was the quarter to quarter change before it was annualized. And I had a heart, I was, my heart stopped. I go, oh my gosh, what the heck, what, what happened? Um, but, you know, it turns out um, anyway. So uh, just summing up the data, Chris, how would you characterize the data? 
over the last week or the last few weeks? Uh, what is it? Was it saying about the economy? Or, yeah, just everything. What's it saying about the economy? Yeah, well, so it's uh, second consecutive quarter negative GDP growth, right? So that's problematic or. No, no, no. Side. I mean, here, here, forget about oh, Europe. In the U.S. Yeah. Oh, forget about oh, Europe. Sorry. Sorry, oh, come on, listeners. <laughs> that was the whole point. <laughs> That's the whole point. Yeah. Okay. What's it saying about Europe? Go ahead. Go for it. Uh, worrisome, right? Yeah. You would think, but there are a lot of uh, asterisks here, right? Vaccine rollout has been slow, but is projected to uh, to advance here. You have the supply chain issues affecting automotive aeronautics industry, but you know, there again, we think things are going to improve. So. Not uh, overly concerned, but certainly that's something to to keep on the radar, and and we have to worry about the globe as we're thinking about the U.S. outlook as well. There were a lot of lockdowns in yeah. Q1 in Europe. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, absolutely. Well, uh, it, it, you know, it's interesting. I mean, in the case of Europe, if, I'm not overly worried because you know they are vaccinating, they are slow, yeah. but they're moving in the right direction. And it feels like if the you know the UK is already opening up, and it feels like that economy is coming right back to life. I'm not all that worried about it. I mean, it's obviously not great, but I, I think they'll turn it around here pretty quickly. I, I really worry about the emerging markets, though. You know, For Brazil, sure. India are kind of really struggling here, and there, uh, it's not clear that they're going to get that, those vaccines out there very quickly. So that could be more of an issue, more of a problem. And we have a lot of colleagues in those parts of the world, and you know, really uh, feel for them and and uh, thinking about them. So, you know, it's a tough situation. Uh, but back, coming back here to the United States, so if you add up all the data, Ryan, what do you think? Uh, how would you characterize things? Booming. Booming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really strong across the board. I mean, uh, so we got personal income to this morning. Uh, and that was that 21.1%. Yeah, the one you got. Yep. yep. So uh, I estimated our uh, excess savings in the U.S., it's two point three trillion dollars. Yeah, two point three. That's what I saw. It's enormous. Right. Yeah, but enormous. Yeah, consumer spending is doing really well. I mean, across. I mean, the board, and excess saving is defined as for folks out there. How would you? How would you care? How would you define excess saving? What's well, the amount of X? And you can add on to the definition, but I always think about it as the counterfactual. Like, if we didn't have, like, what's the ex, excess amount of savings that people are doing? Uh, because of the fiscal stimulus, because of the inability to spend on consumer services and, and other things. So it's the saving above which they uh, would, would have done if there was no yes. pandemic. Correct. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, very good. Uh, so the, it's booming. So let me ask you a question uh, and try not to be too political, but you know, uh, let's see how you handle this. Who gets the credit for this? Uh, is it President Trump or is it President Biden? None of the above? But what do you say? What do you think? I mean, I got my view. I'm curious in your view. I give it to Congress. You do? You give it to Congress? Yeah, because, I mean, they were the ones that passed, you know, even under, I mean, under Trump, we got a lot of fiscal stimulus. Then they came in right away and passed more stimulus under Biden. It was targeted. I mean, there was problems, you know, with a few programs like the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program. You know, in hindsight, you might want to, tweak it a little bit better to make it simpler for people to file. But all in all, I think you got to tip your hat to them with the fiscal policy response. Okay. So let me ask you, if President Trump was reelected, would we have gotten the American Rescue Plan? Yes. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. No, they, they would have done yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, It would have yeah, been as right. big. We yeah. would have gotten that, something. I, let me, let me I have a whole, well, before I give you my view, and you can already... <laughs> 
<laughs> tell what I how I'm thinking about. It. What do you think, Chris? Uh, so I agree with Ryan that Congress certainly deserves a lot of the room, a lot of the credit. But I actually, I would give it to Pfizer and Moderna. Right? I, without the vaccines, we wouldn't be anywhere near where we are today. Yeah. So okay. I, I think that's clear. And the second, I, I also think uh, Powell, central banks in general, hmm. we can't discount them. I, the quick action, the speedy action. I think that was critical. Uh, you know what? Who I give it to? You know, uh, since we're we're not going to answer the question, uh, so uh, I'm going to give it to the Georgia Senate races, it, really, because uh, if the Georgia Senate races had not uh, been close, if it, you know, if the Republicans thought they would win them hands down, I don't think we would have gotten that 900 billion dollar COVID relief package. Uh, in the lame duck in 20, late 2019, December of 2019. And I don't think on, on the other side, you know, if the Republicans held on to the uh, Senate, we would have gotten another fiscal package. I mean, maybe what push comes to shove, but only if the economy started going south. And by the way, the economy was going south. Remember, remember back in December, we lost jobs. Uh, and if you go back and look at uh, Ryan's calculates this monthly GDP statistic, it's basically gone nowhere from October, from October all the way through, it goes up and down a little bit month to month. But if you look through it, it's basically flat, you know, over that period. And we, and that's even with all that support. So, uh, in my view, the the fact that those Georgia Senate races were so close, that lit a fire under uh, Congress and the Trump administration, saying, you know, I got to get, the, I got to pass something to try to win those elections. And they didn't. And then, of course, the Democrats got control of government. And then now we're off and running. And I don't I don't I, I have a very different view. I think if, the, if we had a different uh, outcome with the Georgia Senate races or the presidential election, I, I think we'd be in a very different place. And I think actually the rollout of the vaccinations, you know, who knows, you know, if uh, uh, President Trump would have been as effective as Biden. Hard to hard to know. But we do know Biden's administration was very effective. And uh, given, you know, how the Trump administration handled the rest of the pandemic, was, which was pretty vexed at best, uh, you know, it doesn't, doesn't take a genius to think that it, the raw of the vaccine might not have been all that well. So I give it to the Biden administration. I think you know, they deserve, you know, I give it to Congress. You're right. I think that they're, you're, you're right about that. I do think central banks deserve a lot of, uh, of uh, credit here as well. But I, you know, at the end of the day, I, I give it to the Biden administration. Um, but um, to debate to be continued. Uh, we're going to have this debate for a long time. Okay, let's get to the big topic of the day and the American Family Plan. And, uh, you know, just to frame it, the American Family Plan, uh, of course, is the second part of the Build Back Better agenda. The first part was the infrastructure plan, the so-called American Jobs Plan. Uh, and it's big. Uh, it's another uh, $2 trillion or so in additional spending and tax credits. This plan is focused on, as it's titled, families. So it's really mostly about kind of child care uh, and uh, uh, family leave, um, uh, medical leave, uh, education, uh, you know, uh, early childhood education. So there'd be uh, universal pre-K and uh, if, if, if you're up for it, uh, two years of community college for free, a little bit more money for Pell Grants uh, and uh, some additional money for healthcare, uh, the ACA, the, Amer the Obamacare, uh, the Affordable Care Act, and a little bit of money for I the IRS. Because the way that this program is paid for, um, uh, at least um, in, in the, in, on paper, 
it's uh, higher taxes on high income individuals, uh, wealthy households. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's uh, uh, rolling back the Trump tax cuts for high income individuals. It's uh, uh, taking capital gains dividend rates up to regular income for people who make over a million dollars. And really, interestingly enough, the biggest line item in terms of revenue is having the IRS crack down on um, uh, wealthy households in terms of how much they pay in taxes. There's a lot of studies that come out showing that they're not, you know, it's, you know, uh, uh, a lot going on with, with uh, some of the very wealthy taxpayers and uh, they're not paying their fair share. So they crack down on that. So a, a lot going on, on it, in on that. And we can talk about sort of the, the economic logic behind this and some of the other reasons why they're doing this. But broadly speaking, how do you feel about the, the package? Uh, Chris, you want to go first? Uh, sure. So I, I think it's a slam dunk uh, economically. This is, uh, this is exactly the type of uh, program that government is designed to address. These are all areas that, uh, you know, there, I, I guess to put it uh, this way, there are very few things that economists agree on. But uh, primary education, the returns to primary education, universally known as you know high, very high returns. So supporting childcare, supporting primary education, those are you know things we should be doing anyway. So this is just a, a natural uh, from that standpoint. We can argue about the size of these programs, perhaps, and I think this is the opening gambit. So there'll be some debate, but uh, I can't see. I, I can't see the resistance here. This is, seems like a pretty clear-cut case. These are public goods. You're not going to get the, the private market, you know, providing these types of services. I, I see it as a slam dunk. Uh, oh, really? Interesting. When you say slam dunk, slam dunk economically or politically or both? Well, uh, economically. Econ uh, economically, okay. Politically, the issue here I see is that these are the gains from these plans are going to be far off in the future, right? We educate primary school children today primary age uh, school children today will get the gains 10, 15, 20 years from now. So politically, that's perhaps an issue. Um, there will be some immediate gains from childcare. I, I do think that'll help with uh, labor, uh, labor force participation in general, women's labor force participation in particular. So I think, I think we will see some real benefits and results if this passes uh, in the near term. But uh, yeah, a lot of those gains are going to be longer uh, longer, far off in the future. Yeah, right. Are t difficult. Right. Anything about the plan you're uncomfortable with? Uh, I mean, of course, there's a lot of pushback from opponents on the tax side saying that this would be very uh, negative for economic activity and growth, you know, uh, raising taxes on high income, high net worth households, uh, that, that that would be uh, a problem for the economy. It, it, what do you think of that argument, or or is there anything about the plan you don't like? Uh, you know, so the tax. So as I said, I think this is the opening gambit. There'll be some negotiations here. I think the uh, you know the evidence is pretty weak that uh, raising the taxes at the higher end of the income spectrum leads to deleterious economic uh, effects regionally. Perhaps you'll see some some flight uh, out of the higher tax areas to lower tax areas. But overall, from a macro perspective, I think the benefits are going to outweigh uh, the costs here. So I'm not, I'm not terribly concerned. Again, I think there'll be some negotiation yeah. here that, you know, reduces the size of the, of the plan and the tax effects as well. And I'm not, 
I'm not concerned that the taxes are going to uh, really lead to a decline in investment or affect our long-term growth uh, negatively. Got it. Got it. Hey, so it sounded, you know, we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago around the American jobs plan, which was the yeah. infrastructure plan. Uh, and you weren't nearly as enthusiastic about that one, or at least that was my read on your comments <laughs> as you are on this one. Do I have that right? So I, I think the programs are, uh, even the, the other plan, I, I think the, the programs are, are well-intentioned. But when it comes to infrastructure, I think you have some other options. I think you do have a private sector that can step in or partner and provide those services. So there wasn't so much the, I'm, I'm certainly an advocate of more uh, infrastructure spending, uh, certainly that our investment, uh, certainly we, there's a need for that, but it's the mechanics of how we get there, what's, what's the approach. Uh, Here, I, I don't see the option. I, the private market is not going to step in and provide these types of uh, services, right? And this is the right. role of government to address these issues. Right, right, right. Uh, makes sense. So are, are you, would you consider yourself a progressive or like a, oh, wow. like a o, AOC progressive, a Bernie questions. Sanders wow. progressive, a Elizabeth Warren progressive? I'm just trying to get a peg on you. Yeah. I'm unpeggable. I'm you're unpeggable. Yeah, I'm that's a I, lifelong yeah. Uh, independent. Uh, oh, okay. You're not going to tell me. You're not going to tell uh, me, are you? Registered independent since day one. Are, oh, you are registered independent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I thought since you're so wealthy, you know, you'd be a little bit more, you know, trying to protect your your nut. You know, the, 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 all that. Now, let me ask you a question. I don't know the answer to this, but <laughs> you should know the answer since you own so much crypto. <laughs> Do you pay capital gains on crypto? You must, right? I get, right? If I buy a dollar of crypto and I sell it for a thousand bucks, like I know you've been doing regularly, uh, <laughs> are you paying full, full fare on that? And, and uh, your capital gains, I guess, right? I don't know the yeah, answer. It's, I should, it's yeah, the answer is yes. Asset, yeah. Right? Okay. It's an asset. Yeah. Okay. I should know the answer to that. And I so. think that's why you have these uh, non fungible tokens and other things cropping up because it's a way uh, to try to divert. Those, right. Uh, transactions. Right. I see. So you don't. You Once mean you, you convert to, into dollars, right? That's, yeah. Uh, that's, that's when you got to pay a tax. I believe so. That, but, so you're saying if I have a crypto coin and I buy a non fungible token for a pay, a painting, right? In you're crypto. Saying, in crypto, it's not a. Tr it's not a. I, I don't believe that's a. Oh, because it's currency into an asset. I see. I'm so confused. It's someone should confusing. know the. We should know the answer to this. I'm we will investigate, up. or someone will tell us. <laughs> I mean, but you're the crypto king. So what the heck? You don't know this stuff. How can you not know this? Uh, yeah. Oh, see, buy and hold. It's just buy and hold. You're one of these guys. The IRS is coming after. Yeah, I can. As tell. long as you don't sell, uh, Mark. There's, All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, maybe you're right. All right. Uh, Ryan, so uh, what do you think? Uh, what, do you, what do you think of the American Family Plan? Are you a fan as well? Yeah, I'm a big fan. I agree with everything Chris said. Uh, you know, I think it's a huge investment in the American people, and I think this is exactly what we should be doing. When it comes to the taxes, you know, I was curious to see, you know, are there economic costs to raising the capital gains tax? And really, the only there isn't a lot of evidence of. You know, we have a small sample. There's only been two times, you know, since the 1980s that we raised the capital gains tax. And of course, like, you know, in the fourth quarter, right before the tax hike goes into effect, you get a, you know, sell off on the stock market, like a correction. But after that stock prices re resume rising. So there's no, doesn't seem from this small sample like evidence that it's going to permanently alter people's, you know, appetite towards equity markets. And as we right. talked about before, you know, increasing the corporate 
tax rate. I mean, that, it didn't boost the economy when we cut it and it's not going to hurt it when we reduce it. And the same likely holds when you increase the tax rates on you know the well-to-do households. Right. The, just for the listener, the corporate tax rate hike is used to pay for the infrastructure in Correct. the American yep. Jobs Plan. And you're saying, look, raising the corporate tax rate as the president has proposed to pay for infrastructure, yeah, on the margin, maybe negative, but no big deal because of, you know we've we've seen what there's been really a little benefit to a tax corporate tax cut. So why would we think there's going to be a significant hit to the economy from a, tor- a corporate tax increase? So right. I've never seen any. Yeah, I've never seen any evidence that trickle down economics works. But yeah, I mean, you, you, both of you may have a different assessment, but it just doesn't seem like going the opposite no, direction. I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm with. So can I ask you? Are you a what kind of? You're you. You seem like a a very progressive Democrat. You know, AOC kind of Democrat. Or do I got you wrong? It could, you're over. No? You're over two. No, I'm over. Oh, so are you yeah. an independent as well? Mm-mm. Oh. No, I'm a registered Democrat. Oh, you are a registered Democrat. Okay. Yeah, but I'm like centrist. That's what they all say. That's what they all say. He's yeah. a Biden Democrat. Yeah. I'll okay. tell you a Biden story. I actually played golf behind him one time. Let's say that again. I played golf uh, behind, pre- or you know. Oh, so you're you're, you're you're one of these bourgeois guys too. You you got money as well. No, no. Uh, well, you're playing golf behind. Uh, president Biden. What am I supposed to think? He, he wasn't president. He was running for okay. president. Oh, I see. Okay. And he asked, he's like, do you mind if we tee off in front of you? I was playing with my father-in-law. I was like, oh yeah, of course. Uh, bad, bad idea. Cause I, I think I hit into him once or twice. Oh, is that right? Was he a good golfer? Yeah. He's a very good golfer. Yeah. Um, so you guys didn't ask me what I thought of the American family's plan. I guess Since we we already know your politics and we already know what you think. Yeah. <laughs> you know my politics. Oh, so how would you uh, characterize me since you know my politics so well? It, it's clear. You know, it's you clear. never found a uh, a tax hike you don't like. And, uh, <laughs> oh, 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 that's so never rude. Never found a spending plan. <laughs> yeah, that's so rude. So rude, so rude. But I, but I am a fan. I am a fan. You know, here's the thing. <laughs> Let me tell you why I'm a fan. You know, for many of the reasons you gave as well. But, you know, to me, uh, this is both the American Jobs Plan and the American Family Plan, the, the Build Back Better agenda, is about uh, long-term growth. Uh, it's about lifting the long-term growth of the economy. The American Jobs Plan is mostly around trying to lift productivity growth, you know, by raising the uh, amount and quality of the public uh, capital stock, the infrastructure, that's so necessary for the competitiveness of our businesses and their, and their productivity uh, uh, growth and gains. While the American Family Plan is really focused, not exclusively, because you mentioned education, obviously education is raising educational attainment, which improves productivity of the labor force, but it's really mostly more focused, at least more directly, most immediately on labor force participation. So, you know, child care, if, if you, uh, uh, you know, help people with their child care, which, you know, kind of, if you look at the numbers, I was looking, I did um, a study, uh, Sophia Koropetsky, one of our other colleagues and I wrote a, did a study back uh, in the presidential campaign when Senator Warren came up with a universal child care program. And it's very similar to what is in the American Family Plan. You know, it's for lower income households. You, you get subsidies up to if you spend more than 7% of your income on, on childcare. 
And you want to guess what the uh, typical cost of sending a uh, taking care of a five-year-old kid is, you know, through childcare, typical uh, across the country. Just take a guess. Annual, annual cost. What do you think that is? I don't want to say because then people can glean what I pay for daycare. Which I daycare, right? You have any sense of that? Ten k, ten thousand dollars a year. Yeah, and if, and you know what it is in in I don't know what it is in Pennsylvania where you live, Ryan. And you and I live in Massachusetts. It's the highest in the country, fifty k, fifty k. Yeah, kind of gives you a sense of things. So, you know, for many lower income households, and median household income is 50K a year, lower income households, you know, this is very prohibitive. And they, 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 if they can't afford childcare, they can't go to work. And that's one of the reasons why uh, female uh, labor force participation is so low in the United States compared to many other countries. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of locked up talent there that uh, you know, needs to be unlocked. And, and I think that would, go a long way. Paid family leave, medical, paid um, uh, medical leave. Also, you know, very similar that the burden of, you know, taking care of uh, uh, kids, uh, uh, newborns and uh, the elderly and the sick, you know, fall on generally on, on women. And, on, and uh, they're another reason why female participation is so low. So I, in my view, this is about, you know, longer term growth. And, you know, it roughly, the other thing I like about it, and I think is really critical uh, is that it roughly pays for itself, you know, it, you know, not in the 10 year budget horizon you know, that, you know, we all use congressional budget office uses to score these programs, but over a 15 year period, because a lot of these, like particularly for the infrastructure, it's a one-time expense and it goes away after you spend it, but the tax increases remain in place. So over a 10 year period, it, 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 it adds to deficits and debt, but over a 15 year period, it, you know, it pays for, uh, pays for itself. So, I, and I think that's critically important, you know, now with large budget deficits and debt. And by the way, uh, you know, that's not a very, that may not be a very progressive thing to say, right? So that, you know, that's my, uh, you know, <laughs> middle of the road. I think deficits and debt do matter. Uh, and uh, particularly when an economy gets back to full employment, which it soon will over the next uh, couple of years. Uh, so there's nothing in these, in these, in this plan, the American family plan you would change. No. Okay. Uh, you know, the, like I said, the amounts we can, yep. you know, it's yeah. hard to, it's really hard to judge as you're looking at these yep. plans and understanding is this, uh, what is the appropriate amount here? So I think there's room for negotiation there, but in terms of the scope and what the plans are focusing on, I, there's nothing yeah. in here that, you know, I would, I would, uh, object to earning a yeah, tax think, credit. I mean, they're all things that make a lot of sense. Right. The one thing I would add is like, you know, the three of us, we've been assessing a lot of fiscal policies over our careers. And as economists, I mean, maybe you guys do it differently, but I try to put blinders on. Like if, you know, someone put this plan in front of me that was, if it was President Bush, I would be, we would be saying the same thing about it than if President Biden put it forward. So yeah, good point. We, we look at history, we look at, you know, our, we run this stuff through our models and the output's the output. You know, we don't try to, you know, influence at all. Yeah. The, the one thing I will say, I am coming out with a, you know, we, as you said, Ryan, we evaluate a lot of these fiscal policies and we write our analysis and we've done that for, we did it for the American Rescue Plan. We did it for the American Jobs Plan and we're in the middle of doing it for the American Families Plan. We'll probably release that on Monday. I'll work on it over the weekend. But the one interesting thing about it is that the benefits do take a long time to develop, right? So, it, it, you know, we, I show a 10-year forecast horizon, budget horizon, and over that period, the, the economic benefits are, are pretty small. Uh, they're, they're not large, uh, but they, uh, 
uh, but they do, you know, like for example, uh, early childhood, uh, you know, education, you know, uh, uh, universal uh, pre-K, you know, for, for kids that are three and four, that doesn't reap any real benefit, right? Until 20 years from now, right? And we know from studies that the studies are pretty definitive that they make a big impact in childhood development in their future educational attainment and ultimately, you know, uh, how productive they are to, to the economy. Uh, but we won't see the benefits of, the, of that for, you know, a long time, well outside the budget horizon. So that it makes it feel somehow, you know, when I do the study, just inadequate, right? Because I, you know, it's, I'm, I'm doing it over that uh, 10 year budget horizon and, and it just doesn't feel, you know, like I'm, I'm capturing everything that, that that's going on. Somehow we've got to change the way, if we're going to make these big investments that have big payoffs, but only over a long period of time, somehow we got to think differently about how we do the accounting and the budgeting, right? Because, you know, you can't solve big problems in even in 10 years. Here's the other thing about the, the plan. I'm curious what you think. And this is sort of the, the way I think about it. It's working to help support longer term economic growth, but then uh, make sure that the benefits of that growth go to lower income households, that it is also addressing the income and wealth distribution issues that we have in the country, that they you know, are much wider today than they have been in the past and they're still growing. And this is a way to help with long growth, long-term growth, but also make sure that you know, the fruits of that, of, of that really go to households who really need it, you know, sort of at the bottom of the income and wealth distribution. So I don't know if you have any views on that or any thoughts on that uh, 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 other than what I just added. Oh, I guess you are accruing the benefits towards the bottom of the income distribution and you're also taxing more at yeah, the top of the income exactly. distribution, right? So yeah, if the, uh, yep. if the objective is reducing direct. income inequality, it's yeah, yep. pretty direct on both pretty, ends. Pretty direct. Okay, so we don't, it doesn't feel like we have much of a disagreement here. I mean, we're gonna, I, mean, I guess we're gonna have to get uh, one of our other colleagues in here that uh, might have a different perspective to push back a little bit. Or maybe it's, it's well, it is what it is, right? Uh, it's good policy, so hopefully- Yeah, maybe it was just well done. Just well done, right. And by the way, we are including, we're not uh, adopting wholesale what's been proposed by the president, but we are incorporating uh, a big, part of his proposal, his Build Back Better agenda, into our baseline forecast. Uh, so it is part of our long-term economic outlook. And we are a bit more optimistic now than we were, you know, a few months ago before all this happened. So it uh, feels pretty Do good. you know how much it raises What's your potential GDP? Yeah, it, it raises uh, in uh, 2031, 10 years from now, both plans together. What what we've assumed will be adopted and, and to be, you know, just to give you a sense of it, the president has proposed four and a half trillion in additional uh, spending and tax credits, three and a half trillion of tax increases over a 10 year period. We're assuming three trillion of the spending and tax credits get passed and roughly two trillion, two and a half trillion of, of it will be covered by tax increases in the first 10 years. All of it's covered over a 15 year period, but over the first 10. So if that's it, if that's that's our forecast, then our, our long run potential growth rate of the economy, GDP growth in year 2031 is 10 to 15 basis points higher than, than it was previously. So it lifts it by, now you may say, oh, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it, you know, we're going from 1.9% to a little over 2% per annum. 
And that adds up to a lot of money over a, a period of a decade or two, certainly over a generation or two. So that's a big deal. So that's, that's kind of the numbers we're, we're getting. But still feels a little bit inadequate. Okay. Uh, anything else on the on the Build Back Better agenda you want to talk about or anything else you want to say about fiscal policy that we, we kind of missed? Uh, you So you mentioned the uh, how we're thinking about the the amounts. you have any sense of the timing? When did these things get passed? Yeah. So uh, towards the end of the year, uh, it uh, uh, through reconciliation. So this is the budget process that will uh, allows the uh, Democrat uh, Democrats to pass this without any Republican support. So under a reconciliation bill, uh, you can pass with a 50-50 vote. Because you get, the, you, know, you know, if you get, if you, the, if you're, you control the vice presidency, they can, she can break the vote in your favor, uh, and you don't need to get 60 votes to break a, a filibuster. So we're assuming that uh, that this gets through on a, on a reconciliation. It, we're kind of agnostic with regard to whether it's two reconciliation bills. You know, there's a thought that you you, you might because of the Senate rules, there might be another reconciliation bill in this fiscal year and then one early next fiscal year, as you know, the fiscal year ends in uh, September. So both would be at the end of the year, or it could be all, if they can't do another reconciliation bill this year because they did the, the American rescue plan under reconciliation and there might be some limits on only doing one a year. If that ends up being the case, then they'll combine them and pass them as one reconciliation bill in uh, at the start of the uh, next fiscal year, probably in October or November, something like that. And it would be, it would take effect uh, January, uh, 2022. Uh, uh, so that's when it would start. Yeah. That, that's so, in our, that's our baseline. So no chance of cleaving off the infrastructure piece of it, passing something on a bipartisan basis or no. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm skeptical they'll get any kind of thing done in a bipartisan way. I mean, it, it's possible that the Republicans feel that politically they need to support some type of infrastructure plan so that you know, maybe get a skinny infrastructure plan through. But at the end of the day, I think they'll come to the conclusion that that will just free up more for a big reconciliation package that the Democrats are going to pass anyway. And that might include more things than otherwise would have been the case that they don't are particularly fans of. So I, I'm skeptical that we're going to get a bipartisan deal here on even on infrastructure, even though it is popular out there. Uh, possible, but I, that's not what I'm assuming. That's certainly not my in our, our in our in our forecast. Yeah. So, um, okay, very good. Uh, so we covered a lot of ground. Uh, you know, I think um, we came to the conclusion that uh, well, first of all, the economy is off and running here, boom like growth. The American Rescue Plan, along with the winding down of the pandemic, means that this economy is off and running certainly over the next 12, maybe even 18 months. And uh, I think we also concluded, you know, broadly speaking, that the uh, Build Back Better agenda, the American Jobs Plan, American Family Plan, uh, are uh, good for long-term economic growth and will also address uh, some of the income and wealth inequalities that uh, plague us today. So, and uh, we do expect that uh, the plan, some form of these plans will get through uh, into law and, uh, uh, be, become effective uh, beginning er, uh, in uh, 2022. So, a lot, lot to uh, uh, to uh, uh, ground to cover here. But, um, but uh, I think uh, right now the ground looks uh, pretty encouraging. Uh, pretty, pretty optimistic about uh, the way things are going here. 
Um, with that, I'm going to, we're going to call it a, 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 a podcast. I want to uh, say two things. First, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, but uh, if you like what you heard, uh, we, uh, give us a rating. Uh, you know, that's uh, very important for getting our message out. We want people to uh, listen to this uh, broad and wide. And the more ratings we get, uh, the easier that becomes. And the second thing, and this is uh, going to be a new feature of these podcasts, I think. We'll see how it goes. Uh, if you, the listener, have any questions that you want to post to us, um, uh, send them our way uh, at uh, email us at help at economy.com, H-E-L-P at economy.com. Uh, that's our helpline. We'll, we'll pick up those, uh, those um, questions and uh, we'll uh, take a crack at answering uh, one, two or three or four of them, depending on you know, how many we get and, and how good they are. They have to be good. Oh, by the way, if we do pick them, uh, we will, we've got all kinds of uh, Moody's and economy.com. Remember economy.com? That was the company that we sold to Moody's uh, 16 years ago. We still have some of that swag. Uh, Ryan told me we've got a whole uh, closet full in the, on, on the third floor in our office. I, which none of us have seen in a year, but we're assuming it's still there. Uh, but uh, if you, uh, if we pick your question, uh, we will be sure to send you, uh, uh, you know, freelunch.com bag or a economy.com hat or a Moody's. I don't know what Moody's swag. Got, but shirt, Moody's shirt. Yeah, whatever it is. But please uh, feel free. Uh, we're very curious to hear what's on your mind. And uh, we'd be very happy to respond to your questions. So with that, uh, thank you very much and talk to you next week.